Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic, generally from the perspective of the other. I am Royfield Brown, is king of all he surveys, which at the moment is just the back end of some trees at the moment looking out my window. But the sky is blue. It's a wonderful day in the Bay Area in California. Today I'm joined by author and constitutional law scholar Corey Brett Snyder in Rhode Island and by journalist, pundit and a woman with a faltering memory whenever she needs to go on Sky TV, Emma Burnell in London. Say hello, folks. Hiya. Whoa. In a week in which a leading investor said that the UK increasingly resembles an emerging market and risks a currency crash should it leave the EU without a deal, we ask just what's happened this week in the car crash that is Brexit. There are no easy options here. There is no simple way forward. The deal the government has negotiated is a compromise, both with the EU and with members across this House. That is the nature of complex negotiations. The results of the process this House has gone through today strengthens our view that the deal the government has negotiated is the best option. We're going to take a live look inside the UK House of Commons right now. MPs there voted today on eight alternative Brexit options, and the results are in. Not one of them received a majority vote, which seems to have given May some extra leverage after she offered to step down. Theresa May, the British Prime Minister, she offered earlier today to step down sooner than planned if MPs finally pass, pass I'm sorry, her twice-defeated plan. The CBC's Chris O'Neill Yates is in London. She's been watching these developments all day. So the last time you were on with us, about an hour ago, we were waiting for the, te- the results to come in. Now we find out none of those votes actually went through. So what happened? Well, it's hard to tell, Vashi, whether this actually simplifies or complicates things. <laughs> Why is the immediate future of Theresa May vital to the outcome of Brexit? Well, 
I'm not sure that it is. She gambled that it was. She gambled that by saying, look, I promise I will go if you, if you pass my deal, that that would be enough to get her deal over the line, but it hasn't proved to be so. And she has only promised to leave if her deal gets over the line. That, you know, the promise was conditional. Given the internal rules of the Tory party, um, if she decides not to go if they don't pass her deal, there's absolutely nothing they can do about it until December because they had a vote of no confidence in December. And if a leader wins that vote of no confidence, they are then guaranteed not to be challenged again for a year. So actually, to coin a phrase that <laughs> Theresa May is rather fond of, nothing has changed. All right, so... Are we? She's trying to get the the right wing rump of the party along with her, isn't she? Yes. With, with her version of her deal, they're all real upset with her. They say that she's done a really, dare I say, a piss poor job, and and she's basically saying, just let me get this over the line, and uh, basically support me, and then I will walk. But we have seen movement on that kind of Brexiteer fringe, haven't we? We've had these indicative hmm. votes and. Rees-Mark Boris Johnson voted for um, for softer Brexity type options, didn't they? Because they can see the way the wind is blowing in Parliament. Am I wrong? No, I think you're confusing two stories there. Okay, um, good. Boris, what happened was Boris Johnson uh, on Monday wrote an article mm -hmm. saying uh, Brexit has been taken over by terrible pirates and Theresa May's deal is awful and I will never vote for it. On Wednesday, Boris Johnson said they might found out there might be a leadership contest if he voted for it. And I'm not entirely sure I've seen anyone turn around quite so quickly, even at the ballet. Yeah, he immediately got behind the, uh, got behind the deal. So uh, it was you know, quite extraordinary. Um, you know, it, it, he's just so self-serving. Is, um, is it the equivalent of the teacher who's saying, OK, if any of you can do it better, come up here. And the teacher is hoping no student's going to take them up on it. Or the comedy club where you say if anybody can be funnier. And then I guess my question is, is somebody going to jump up that actually can do it? Yes. Oh, not that can do it and not in my opinion. But yeah. there's plenty. You know, the Tory party is largely stocked with over arrogant public school boys <laughs> who have been fed confidence with their cornflakes. Now, very rarely is this confidence deserved. <laughs> very rarely does it match their talents. But they have it in spades. So it is absolutely uh, never going to be the case that no one's going to want that job. <laughs> they all think they could do it better. And that is what has, has moved some members of the so-called ERG, the European Research Group, which is the hard Brexiteers, um, mm -hmm. because they, they're suddenly sniffing that they could go be leader. The, the, I don't think any of them supported any of the softer Brexit options in the indicative votes, which was a separate thing that happened at the same time. What was the surprise in the indicative votes was how well a second referendum did. That's the thing that everyone in Westminster is talking about today, mm. because nobody expected that to get as nearly as many positive votes as it did. It got the most positive votes of any of the options, even though the margin, it was the second smallest margin in terms of the loss. So all of the indicative votes lost. The one that came closest was Ken Clark's um, proposition of having a customs union, of joining the customs mm -hmm. union. Um, the, then after that came this public vote option, which is a, a confirmatory referendum. Or as I read a wonderful article this morning, described it as a people's veto. So <laughs> it's, you know, now we know what it is. Mm. You can decide whether you want to veto it yeah. or not.
All right, so why did 27 Labour MPs defy the free line whip uh, against that second referendum, which was tabled by Margaret Beckett? Because it appears to me that if that hadn't happened, that would have passed. Uh, absolutely, and there will be a lot of people asking that question today uh, of those MPs, and those MPs are going to find themselves under considerable pressure to move but when I, this comes back next week. But those MPs, give us the name of just one of them, are they sat in leave remaining seat? Was this personal pressure from their constituents as they perceive it, or was this like a vote of conscience? G give us a snapshot of maybe one or two of those MPs that voted against the Labour Party whip. One of them is someone I respect a great deal. Uh, I have an enormous amount of time for Lisa Nandy, for example. Mm -hmm. um, she's a great MP. She's an interesting person. She's a thoughtful person. I happen to think she's wrong on this, and you know, I'm, I have no problem saying so. We're good enough friends that I can say that to her. Um, but the pressure that she feels from her Leave constituency is quite high. She's also... Um, very concerned about the the implications that a second referendum would have on civic society. You know, on, 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 you know, there is an awful lot of talk of violence in the streets. Now, I personally don't particularly feel that we should be blackmailed by anyone talking about violence in the streets mm -hmm. and that that is not the way to run a democracy. But... I understand the fear, I understand the, the nervousness, I understand the, the wanting to find a compromise place. I feel that the confirmatory vote is a compromise. You do pass a Brexit and then you check that that's what people want. I think that is the best compromise that we could have. And I, I, you know, I would like to be making that argument more forcefully to those people who were abstaining. Some of the people who voted against are just a, yeah, either pro-Brexit or they are, again, so nervous that they just can't, they just don't want to see a public vote at all. Those who are pro-Vexit are unwinnable. Um, but there are, I would say that there are enough votes that I could see. There's no force more powerful in politics than momentum. And the most powerful type of momentum is sudden and unexpected momentum. So if you look at what happened after... Um, by the way, when I say momentum, I mean momentum with a small end. <laughs> <laughs> I understood you. Um, if you look at what happened when Jeremy Corbyn suddenly turned it around at the 2017 election, for about a year he could do no wrong. He was king and he soared in the polls very quickly. Now, there were some other circumstances that helped with that, things like Grenfell... Um, but you know, there was a moment there that he was king of the world, king of all he surveyed. Um, I think if the people's vote people, and I, you know, I, I put my hand up, I'm doing some work with Labour for a public vote. You know, if, if we take this moment and run with it, that momentum is really powerful. Okay. I'm always kind of like shocked looking at American presidential history, looking at definitely the, those days when uh, you voted for um, a prospective leader of the Republican or Democratic Party behind closed doors and kind of party conventions. And then also with Tory party leadership votes where there are one or two rounds, the, the momentum can be a really weird thing mm. because when Margaret Thatcher was ousted, in 1990, 1991, I can't remember exactly exactly the year, she actually gained the majority of Tory party votes, but then stepped down 
I always think that when the constituency... Gain, she gained the most, but she didn't gain a majority. The most, yes, that's what I meant. I meant, I, what I meant is not what I said. So <laughs> thank you for pulling me up on that. Sorry, but, I'm a pedant. <laughs> no, 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 and thank you for your pedantism. Um, but I think that the point that I'm trying to make is when you have a closed uh, voting constituency, closed, yes, there are, there are external pressures, but then also a relatively small one, it's very volatile. Though this vote came incredibly close um i could see it going the other way as well that that actually those mps that maybe abstained and whatever say oh my goodness this is this is going to happen i am going to vote or uh, so i i don't know is is really what i'm saying though i was surprised like everybody that it, it came so close absolutely but, but the DUP shifted against uh, the PM's deal and Rhys Mogg confirmed that his vote is tied to theirs. Um, why did they do that? Why is the future of the country uh, tied up with this small right-wing unionist party? And is there any pressure on the DUP? And could possibly could even the 10 DUP uh, MPs in Parliament, could their vote be split? It doesn't look like they're going to split. They've been um, absolutely consistent down the line, working as a block. Um, there are probably internal differences within them. Um, certainly, there are political differences within them on a left-right spectrum. But nobody in Westminster seems to take the politics of Northern Ireland and how different the politics of Northern Ireland are from the politics of England seriously. And in order to understand anything uh, that's pedantism, happened Pedantism, pedantism, surely you mean the rest of the UK. No, I don't. And I didn't, I, I said that very deliberately. Ooh, ah, okay. Because right. there is different politics in Scotland, there's different politics in mm. Wales and there's different politics in Northern Ireland. And while Westminster is the only one without its own, uh, England is the only one without its own parliament, Westminster acts as a default English parliament. Uh, and I do mean the politics of England. And that is what is talked about. And you my, t- my wrist has been slapped. <laughs> um, <thank you. laughs> no, you were right. To, you were right to ask because absolutely, technically, Westminster is the UK Parliament. Is, is it, but ca- I was going to say, is all of this unprecedented? I mean, in in UK history, that you're at this much of a standstill. I mean, to us, we're used to gridlock. I mean, our system is designed to so that things don't happen and that they can't move and a decision can't be made. That's happened often in American history. Your system's supposed to be, you know, the people express hmm. their will through Parliament and then there's an answer. But to me, this sort of dysfunction that you're experiencing, part of which at least seems traumatic about it, is that I can't think of a lot of instances where a parliamentary system has had so much trouble making any decision. I mean, it seems that there is no will of the people. There is no will of Parliament. Each decision that gets proposed is shot down eventually, and, and this sort of standstill is shocking. But I'm wondering if that's because it, it usually does function so well. Is that the bright side of all of this? <laughs> yes and no. We have had similar-ish periods. In the 70s, um, 1970s, there mm. was uh, a hung parliament, uh, and it was similarly dysfunctional because, and when you had sort of, you know, one or two votes could make the huge difference. There's a wonderful play called This House, which you ever get the chance to see, I highly recommend. It's by one of our best current playwrights, a guy called James mm. Graham. And it's all about the whips offices, the Conservative whips office and the Labour whips office during the 1970s when there was a lot of swapping over of who was in power and you incredibly close votes. And they were bringing in, for example, this poor old guy called Doc Broughton who was dying. He was an MP and he was dying. And they kept having to drag him to Westminster to, to, to cast a vote because that's how close mm. these votes were. 
Um, and you see this now. There was a, a story a few months ago where Tulip Sadiq, who was heavily pregnant, was forced to go through the lobby in a wheelchair mm. because she had to vote and we don't have any remote voting. But if you're reaching um, back and that far, people... I mean, I mean t- t- you're talking about, you know, which sounds real, that there could be violence because of the breakdown, that people are losing faith in the system. I saw a piece in the New Statesman about why there's sort of a risk of constitutional dictatorship by the prime minister trying to step ahead of parliament. But for us, I mean, it's like, you know, if a bill doesn't pass, that's just the way it is. Bills often don't pass if there's gridlock. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, you have something more fundamental going on. It's about the fundamental structure of your society and withdrawal from Europe. But, but it is, I guess, there, uh, part of it is that you might be suffering from a high expectation that the system functions well. The one thing I'd say, though, there's a point of clarification about the 1970s Mm. when we had a similar-ish, I would say, uh, period of constitutional mulch, like things kind of came to a full stop. It didn't last for as long as this. So you're talking about uh, Wilson's second term Mm. as prime minister from 74 to 76, where basically there's a hung parliament... And the Liberals were a much smaller party than they are now. Uh, I think, oh, I think about they were about the same size as they are now, but they just had a bit where they grew in the middle. Because the coalition no, absolutely no. killed the Liberals. Well, yes, but um, in terms of even their kind of popular share of the vote, actually the Lib Dems vote has kind of collapsed. Anyway, basically what we had was a two-party system of which was a hung parliament, mm. but the, it didn't create this level of constitutional right. crisis. It was, But it didn't have this level of paralysis that the government still could actually get things done. There was unprecedented upheaval that was more economic than actually political. The pound was collapsing. We go to the IMF and we ask to be bailed out. Mm. And that had nothing really to do with, with, the, with, with politics in Westminster. That was purely economic, that the country had really stagnated since the Second World War. And, and that was precipitated by the oil crisis in about 72, 73. Yeah, the OPEC crisis. This yeah. is unprecedented. And, and kind of what has brought this to the fore is the fact that Though we have two big parties, we are in an incredibly multi-party mm. system. And as Emma said last week, the other fracture now is what's happening all throughout the Western world, that it isn't necessarily right against left. Mm. It's open right. versus closed. And that does split um, across, across yeah. party lines. So you have a multi-party system in a parliamentary system, which is really designed for two parties. And then increasingly since the 1970s, third parties have grown in number. The SNP's um, representation has mm. skyrocketed. Uh, the Lib Dems has kind of gone up and down and roundabout. And the whole system is somewhat kind of in chaos. And then you have this uh, internal pressure of MPs saying, should I vote for my in the line with my conscience or do I vote kind of uh, listen to my constituents? Is the future of the country more important than me keeping my, my bum on this seat as an MP? Or do I just say, you know what, um, we've got to look to, to the bigger picture. And all this has just kind of thrown the whole thing yeah. kind of up in the air. But, but you could argue that we had this coming for a long time because our two-party system fundamentally is now uh, a yeah. multi-party system. And we haven't adjusted the institutions to cope with that. And there are these sort of that. deep existential questions, it sounds like, that you're facing this time, that you, it sounds like we're not facing the 70s as serious as that was. The, you know, should we be part of Europe or should we be 
you know, a, a separate entity. Well, we did have that initial decision yeah. in the 70s, right. um, just before so. I was born. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> right. mm. you, okay, so you have that again. You have this existential crisis. And then to me, you've also got this internal sovereignty crisis that's been prompted by the mm. referendum, which, as you know from the last discussion, I think was a mistake. And I don't know that you had that in the 70s, where it was sort of, you have this... Should we be part of Europe or should we be our own sovereign entity? Plus, we have our decision-making process that was usually based in Parliament being basically threatened by this plebiscite. You know, this is like a perfect yeah. storm of identity, of political legitimacy. And that, that's why when I hear the talk about violence, I guess I think that, that might be where it's coming from. It's not just duration. It's these other deeper existential issues. Yeah. Uh, d- yeah. d- just before you answer that question, Emma, th- th- there's a couple of things just to note about when we went into the um, EEC, as it was called mm. it, in the 1970s. Very different it proposition. Purely, exactly. It was purely an economic mm. trading club. You know, it, was, it wasn't a political so, sovereignty issue um, in the same way. Yeah. No, why the left no. were against it at the time. It was a capitalist yes. club. And it, mm. you know, what, what has changed is social Europe has shifted massively and it's become much more of a political project. Yeah. It wasn't an identity and then, and then issue also, in the same way of interest about trade. No, no, yeah. no, no not, not at all. Uh, and also, you still had in the 1970s, within absolute living memory, of course, the Second World War. Mm. And there was an idea that uh, we should bandy together with Europe and, and trading with them was fine. And then also, it's the decade after decolonialization so the mm. empire is completely gone yeah. so we are looking for a direction new zealand butter is not coming into britain at cheap mm. rates anymore so, you know new zealand is not part of the empire it's all gone so we needed new trading partners and and also there was an, a shock by the at the end of the 1960s that west germany and France, places that economically we'd been much stronger than, were were stronger than us. Mm. And we there was a real sense that specifically British car manufacturing, which is really seen as a totem for for British decline, that uh, we needed economically to you know to pull our pants up. So we were going to trade with Europe, and that's what it was going to be. And as as Emma said. What then subsequently happened was increasing kind of social and political kind of integration of which there always was this rump of of kind of political thought that was kind of against it. But then through the administration of Thatcher got louder and louder and has never really quieted it, at least on the right wing of British politics. Perfect storm. Yeah, absolutely. I might give the award to all Let's of you. I was not- wondering, you know, this constant question of which of our countries is in a war. Con- Wait, who's more messed crisis. up? <laughs> and now I'm starting to think it's clearly you. <laughs> it, the, the thing that we have, you, you, you guys have a terrible we president. We do. I mean, I don't think any of us are going to disagree about that. Um, you, as you said before, you're kind of used to Congress right. being completely dysfunctional. That's not new. That's not a sudden crisis. Right. It may be an ongoing slow crisis, but it's not sudden. Basically, since 2010, we've had the fallout from both the expenses scandal and the crash at the same time. So we had no trust in any of our institutions, and the people in charge basically decided to cut everyone's uh, services in order to pay down the debt that the bankers Mm. gave us. So you can imagine that's really popular. So there's no trust in government. There's no trust in the institutions. There's no trust in 
Europe. And we've never really liked Europe. We've always thought we were better than yeah. Europe. Uh, I don't speak for myself, I'm saying generally. You, know, you, you watch any mainstream con- comedian of left or right, that was oh, before the referendum, that yeah. would have been the kind of general attitude. I mean, I'll, I'll stick up for, for our own crisis. I mean, having said that, I think yours is worse. Now I'll make the case for why ours is worse. I mean, I think this is the difference. And this piece that I mentioned, The New Statesman, which I recommend by uh, Leah uh, Yippie, talks about the danger she's talking about in the UK of a sort of Schmittian executive breaking apart. And she's worried about Mays breaking apart from parliamentary sovereignty. But in our country, we have that built into the structure. I mean, the danger of the presidency, which has only gotten worse, there's the famous phrase, of Schlesinger, the imperial presidency, but it sort of understates it. Uh, you know, so much power has been ceded by our Congress to the executive branch um, through legislation and then through court cases and foreign policy that Congress is largely, I mean, I, I hate to say it because I'm, I think this is a travesty and want to see an end to it, and part of my book is about trying to reclaim the power of Congress and to limit the president. When I write a book, you are never going to hear the end of it. <laughs> I mean, so I am against this trend, and I want to say it's terrible, but it's almost inevitable and, and has happened through legislation, through court cases. Mm. And so we're at a point where the executive is 2.5 million employees. Congress has not even a close to a fraction of that. Congress does very little in terms of legislation, but so much power has been ceded to the executive that that's the danger, that the crisis exists in having somebody who has really been unhinged, who doesn't have a basic understanding of democratic norms. And that that break with previous presidents, and he really is different from any other one in that sense, the, the danger is that in the structure, we don't have parliamentary sovereignty or sovereignty of Congress. We supposedly have three co-equal branches, but in reality, we have one that's just taken power. And so that, that's where our constitutional crisis is. I mean, the nuclear trigger is in the hands of one person. <laughs> and he's not a stable person. Well, and equally, your Senate isn't doing its job, that's arguably. Correct, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the yeah. checks and balances are not happening. That's right. that's right. And he's got control of that Senate because it's his party and they're afraid of him. And mm. the, the sort of small moments where they were going to stick up against him uh, really haven't happened. So if you take the emergency crisis where Congress basically said you can't build a wall and now he's declaring an emergency mm. to build it, the arguments on his side is that there is an Emergencies Act passed in the 1970s, early 1970s, which was supposed to limit his power that's just aggrandized it because it turns out that he you know, can invoke this act with the ability to, to, to reallocate funds even though they've said you can't do it from other branches, sorry, from other departments like the military unless they can pass a resolution, which they have, saying no, then he vetoes the resolution. Now they need two-thirds to override mm. this resolution. Now, the one hope that I've been arguing and others is that uh, still, supposedly, there's a court case that says the Congress can just say flat out no, no matter what any law says. Constitutionally, Congress can deny a power to the president. But now who's it going to be to decide that question of whether Congress really did say no? It's a Supreme Court with two of his nominees who are mm. extremely sympathetic to the idea of a powerful executive. So, 
you know, you are in a crisis, but we're in a crisis of a, of a making that's been going on at least since the 1970s of aggrandizement of presidential power. So I don't know. I, it's a very close case. I, maybe I will get <laughs> it. But I suppose the, the, one, the one big difference, uh, apart yeah. from the whole just separation, the equal co-equal co branches of government that you guys have, is that um, your changes are being glacial. And well, depending on what mood you're in, you can kind of say that it's happening faster or slower. Whereas yeah. with us, this has been a quite sudden right. kind of mm. break right. on the normal flow of yeah. politics. And, and I'm excited in one hand, if we can have true multi-party politics in, in the UK, I think it, it's exciting if we are going to have parliament that is sovereign, maybe trying to put the most positive spin on this kind of constitutional crisis that we have is that um, the fact that MPs had these indicative votes this week and we have a speaker who really has taken the agenda away from the executive mm. and has clearly said, right, MPs, what do you think? Mm. Let's just hope that on Friday, tomorrow, when there are going to be more votes, can actually show what Parliament can do. Looking at every trend since 1950, I think the 1950 election was the high point of the two-party system. The, the Liberal vote collapsed then as a sort of third force in British politics. We've had this very slow increase ever since of the Liberal vote, the SNP, the Welsh Nationalists, then the, I, then the Northern Irish MPs come, come back into Parliament and stuff. So this would be great if MPs could be sovereign and actually have an agenda and the strength to put through uh, policies which were truly cross-party, as opposed to the elective dictatorship which we have now in effect of the executive, which we have had until 2010. It's interesting, the speaker winds up playing a big role in kind of reclaiming mm. the authority of parliament, right? Yeah. Even though he's just supposed to be a moderator in some way. It's sort of the person holding the constitution together in your system. Emma, was that a whole load of fantasies talk from me? Or did there, was there some <laughs> level of sense? Mm, I mean, it was very nice. <laughs> <laughs> the speaker's but, not going to save you all? <laughs> uh, the speaker's not going to save us all, bless Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Said. Point of order, Anna Subri. Point of order. Point of order, Anna Subri. Point of order, Anna Subri. explain order let me let me just explain one thing in this place the right honorable gentleman is a very senior member of this house and he is a former chief whip he is not the speaker of this house and it's not for the right or and it's not for the right honorable gentleman to presume the order in which matters are considered and i trust that he won't suppose that it is for him to do so let me say very gently to the right honorable gentleman i treat him with respect i'm not intimidated by the right honorable gentleman and i'm sure i'm sure i'm absolutely sure he wouldn't seek to intimidate me i am taking a point of order from the right honorable lady and frankly that's the situation. It's big as a difficult character because he may seem charming when he's shouting and ranting and raving in the Commons, but he's also under a lot of investigation for bullying his staff. Oh. So there are there are issues there. But, um, but let's talk about the position of the speaker as opposed to specifically I mean, this one. The the the. the Speaker generally is like the umpire of Parliament. That's what mm-hmm. they're supposed to do. They 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 say these are the rules. This is how I'm applying them. You will do this. You will do that. Your turn to speak. Your turn to speak. You get five points. You don't get five points. Mm. Five points to Hogwarts. Um, <laughs> but is that a real place? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we all went there. <laughs> Well, Jacob Rees-Mogg probably did. (laughs) He was definitely Slytherin, though. (laughs) There are two reasons why that's probably not going to happen. First of all, Mm -hmm. um, without changing our voting system, as long as first-past-the-post is how we elect MPs, then we will continue to have this kind of partisanship. Um, and people will ha- and people stand on manifestos, and they're sort of expected largely to stick by those manifestos. There will be occasional um, forgiveness of not doing so, but generally, it's it's very frowned upon not to not to follow the manifesto. And secondly, human nature isn't really like that, and political human nature really isn't like that. And you've got 650 highly ambitious people shoved in a room and told to make decisions. And if you just go, yeah, let's find a nice, soft, gentle consensus, you're not going to get your face on the telly. There's not an MP alive that doesn't want their face on the telly every night. Yeah, whether I like them or not, whether they're my best mates or my worst enemies, that is one part of being an MP is that you want to be on the telly a bit. Sorry, I should say TV for Americans, shouldn't I? (laughs) (laughs) I just think that it would only take one or two people mm. and their ambition to topple that kind of gentle consensus approach. I just don't think that it, that it would work. I mean, I think there are definite ways that it could be done better and it could be less confrontational and there are definite modernization things that could happen that we should all be getting behind 
like, I mean, I would change the voting system, although I wouldn't have gone to AV. AV was a stupid idea. But I do think that having MPs be able to vote remotely, it should not be on the wit of man. Uh, and then you can, you know, you, then there's a lot, lot more ease that you can have, um, particularly for women. Um, it, it is a huge equalities issue. I do think that we could have a parliament that doesn't sit opposite each other in that confrontational way. And when they all have to move out of the building and go somewhere else, because the buildings desperately need a renovation, it would be very interesting to see if they find somewhere where they can sit in a circle, how that changes the dynamic of parliament. Um, because if you ever talk to anyone about prime minister's questions, which is the half an hour that you guys see on the mm. telly, if you see anything from America of our parliament, what you'll see is Prime Minister's questions, because that's when the two leaders stand up and shout at each other. I, I've seen the it. I'd noise. say there's an audience of about 1,500, though, nationwide. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, why would you be watching it, quite frankly? <laughs> and, and I actually, don't watch just, it. <laughs> just, very, just very quickly, the American ambassador was there for PMQs uh, this week, and they made a big song and dance about it. Theresa mm. May uh, acknowledged that just as she delivered uh, her first statement. Yeah, and I think we think it's a big deal, yeah. but actually almost nothing happens at PMQs. Mm. There's always a short clip that they can play for the TV news that evening, and now what they've started doing is actually making their own speeches to their own audiences so that they can clip it and put it on their Facebook pages. Mm. Atmosphere, the point is the yeah. atmosphere in there is so, so loud mm. and toxic and poisonous and aggressive, and they're just constantly barracking each other, um, you, we don't see half of this. Even the mics don't pick up half of this. And it sounds very noisy on the television, but it's nothing compared to what it's like to be you there. You know, it is an example of the leader being held to account by the parliamentary body. So it's got the sort of disastrous, problematic part of it, but also it's got the reigning in of power, which to me, I mean, what I was going to say about our system, I think they each have clear fragilities and there would be a way to pull it out. There could be a story in which in the UK case the speaker is the hero and parliament becomes sovereign again. There could also be a, a story that goes in a terrible, tragic way. I think in our, in our story, the constitutional crisis comes, you're, you're right, uh, Roy Foden, saying that it's um, been long in the making, the, the kind of consolidation of executive power. But I think we do have a suddenness too, which is that we've never had a president like this who has been mm -hmm. so defiant mm -hmm. of norms. I mean, the open racism really fascistic rhetoric in terms of religion and the Muslim ban most graphically, um, but also the hostility towards Chicanos and to basically immigrants of, from all over the world. That, that's unprecedented to have a president speaking that way and to be surrounding himself like that. So it, it's the perfect storm of, yes, structurally, this person is not, not a normal president. Corey, obviously I agree yeah. with you, but I think as important as that and possibly even more and as a person of color i say that advisedly mm. is the fact that he says things like the press is the enemy of the people mm. that to me really shows you how abhorrent his presidency actually is that he doesn't have the the normal rhetoric of consensus right. and of democracy right. you know it's, he's against the rule of law i mean he thinks he should mm. imprison his political opponents the television show Saturday Night Live mocks him and he'd like to put those people in jail. And I can't, John Adams said something like that, but that's the last one. <laughs> Woodrow Wilson next well, I mean, is it that, well, I mean, I, you know, I've done a bit of work. I'm, I should, really should publish it. I wrote an essay for my course and I really ought to publish it on my website um, comparing Nixon and Trump. And I think if you're talking about the, uh, the, um, the rule of law, yeah. 
Nixon definitely had had no regard for that. Certainly, he was a racist. Yeah. Um, and again, that kind of no holds barred stuff against your opponents, and in particular of interest. And one of the reasons I wrote the 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 essay was that one of the things they absolutely did was vilify the press uh, and constant constantly make the press the no enemy. No question there are similarities and the obstruction of justice, you know, from both is one, but I think this is way worse. I mean, Nixon was a lawyer and although he deviously did things behind closed doors, it wasn't in the open and up front. Mm. And Nixon no, knew, exactly. and he knew what he was doing was wrong. I mean, that's the key yeah. thing yeah. about Nixon yeah, 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 is yeah. that he had a guilty conscience. He was a lawyer. He knew what the constitution required and he knew that when he was saying this stuff in private that he was being a bad boy. And this president mm. has no clue. I mean, he looks at the worst parts of Nixon and he thinks, why wasn't he more open about that? He's Nixon without a conscience, without any sense of law. And so, you know, Nixon had the Southern strategy and there was sort of a sly appeal through uh, law and order kind of politics to racism. Trump is an avowed racist. <laughs> so I, I think that with Trump, you know, it, it is worse. Uh, you could say that there was a more subtle form in Nixon of this, but this is times 10, I think. Right. You two, we, we need to move on because literally we're going to have you have like 10 minutes to talk about the United States. But the one thing I would say, though, uh, to agree with how we came into this last bit of the discussion is to say that when I see televised parliamentary committees, I'm always shocked as to how different those MPs actually are. Mm. That when they have their briefs and they're not paying it for cheap sound bites, they actually do know what they're talking about. They are very consensual as a group, Labour, Tory, etc. And you can't believe you're watching MPs. As, just, as a committee, as a body, they seem to be working together. And, and you get some real stars mm. there, people mm. who know their briefs, know their stuff. So I would say let, let's have more of that. But I think you're right, Emma. You know, they're sat together. They're not sat opposite each other. You know, they sit as kind of one body and it absolutely does work. But on that uh, note, we do really need to move on. And let's talk about... President Trump, he's been vindicated. Um, we, he is not a Manchurian candidate, right? Wow, what a what a bar. Okay. <laughs> not a Manchurian candidate. Not in the complete right, grip of uh, Russia's Putin. <laughs> and after three years of lies and smears and slander, the Russia hoax is finally dead. The collusion delusion is over. The special counsel completed its report and found no collusion and no obstruction. I could have told you that two and a half years ago very easily. Total exoneration, complete vindication. You know, it's interesting. Robert Mueller was a god to the Democrats, was a god to them until he said there was no collusion. They don't like him so much right now. 
Mueller has found that there was no Trump-Russia conspiracy. Are you happy that your president has been let off the hook? Um, he's not in the pay of Putin. Over to you in Rhode Island, Court. Uh, thank you. Uh, I think, unfortunately, what the world is hearing is a report from uh, a Trump appointee, the attorney general, who's giving us a summary of a report that we now know is over 300 pages. And he's, you know, spun it in a way that seems to vindicate Trump by saying that basically there isn't evidence to show that there's sufficient uh, reason to indict him when it comes to collaboration with the Russian government. And so, you know, to the extent that the American media and others thought there was a direct relationship that we, and the Mueller report was going to show that, that's a disappointment to those people. But to me, equally relevant is that for the first time in American history, and I can't think of another example, I've been talking to people about it, uh, a report by the Attorney General of the United States says that he received a recommendation from the special prosecutor uh, that suggests that Trump is uh, potentially indictable and that the evidence is there to potentially indict him criminally for obstruction of justice uh, in trying to stop the investigation into this wrongdoing. Now, the Attorney General, I think, thinks that because there was no underlying crime, the collaboration with um, Putin, there can't be a crime of uh, obstruction of justice, but that's completely wacky and incorrect. You can obstruct justice for all sorts of reasons, to save yourself embarrassment, mm. to save yourself, uh, your family from indictment, your friends, Manafort, the people who are being actually indicted, uh, his former campaign manager. Um, the, so uh, that's, the, to me, the historically significant thing that just happened is that this investigation, which has been going on for two years, showed that there's good evidence to suggest that the president might be indictable criminally for obstruction of justice. And what's notable, too, is they didn't take the easy way out of saying, well, there's a constitutional bar to this, and there's an argument about whether there is such a bar. I think there isn't, and that it's a made-up thing by these Justice Department memos. And, and the, the Mueller report makes it very clear that, uh, yes, it's possible that this president is indictable, and it's possible that there's evidence for that. And we know that even from the best spin of, you know, this 300-page report from Trump's ally, the Attorney General. So I think that's what we need to focus on, that this president uh, is a good chance guilty of uh, criminal obstruction of justice. Doesn't this really just show that the Trump campaign was chaotic, they were politically naive, they were amateurs, and that's really it. The, the man's a buffoon, he had a whole load of people around him who didn't think they were going to win, they never played to win the presidential election and kind of acted accordingly. I think that's the absolute key for me here. Of all the things that Mueller was investigating and all the things that are being investigated elsewhere, and, and you know the, the Southern District of New York stuff right. is much more interesting, I think. So I don't think that the collusion was ever the story because I don't think they did particularly want to win. The whole thing, as Michael Cohen said, was an infomercial for Trump TV, which they wanted mm. to launch. So you probably wouldn't collude with Putin to win the election. Now, Putin had his own agenda, so he went off and did a whole bunch of other stuff. But why were they trying to hide all their links to Russia? Mm. I think there are a lot of other reasons to do with all the uh, money mm. laundering of going through buying properties in Trump Tower, of or, you know, Trump Tower Moscow, all of these things that there are almost certainly, and we will find out through various other investigations that are ongoing, right. that there were good reasons for them to obstruct justice. They weren't just weren't reasons of political collusion. Right, I mean, yeah. So, uh, yeah. 
I think that makes a much more right. sense. Yeah, as why was he obstructing justice? Mm. The assumption is, well, there was no underlying crime in collaborating with Russia, but there were other things to hide, the financial crimes yeah. of the Southern yeah. District. Yeah. I mean, let's remember, too, his campaign manager did collude with the Ukraine. He was on the pay of the Ukraine yeah. to basically influence uh, and did influence the Republican National Convention platform uh, to try to, you know, back off basically U U U.S. Mm. intervention there. So there was a, just a huge amount of things that, of indictments that came out. I mean, uh, you know, it was over 30 indictments. And let's not forget either that there really was a Russian attempt to hack the election. That's not made up or paranoid. Um, and there was involvement, um, and there were there were crimes committed by his his cronies. So yes, I think the obstruction piece links to these other investigations that we don't know what happened in the mm. business deal with hmm. um, Putin on Trump Tower Moscow, that's one possibility, and all sorts of other criminal activity that we just don't know that the Southern District of New York is looking into, and the Attorney General of, of New York, the state investigation, uh, might, might reveal and that's why he's obstructing justice. And it's really important to note that you know, he, it, he may well have obstructed justice, and if he did, it's because you know, collusion aside, somebody in Russia has something on him. He is, if these things, and the, the, the range of probability is that they probably are true, if they are true, then that is an incredibly vulnerable position for that president to be in. Yeah. Uh, and this is, you know, a uniquely vulnerable president. Uh, you know, he's vulnerable, Don Jr.'s vulnerable, Ivanka's vulnerable, Jared's vulnerable. All of them are in this and you know, have been caught out lying in some way or another. That we know as a fact. And I, it's just essential that instead of just going, oh, well, the collusion thing isn't real, so none of it's real, 98% of this is probably real. It's just that, that one bit that never really made sense if you take it as, you know, as, as read that Trump didn't want to be president. He just wanted to be a bit more famous than yeah, he was. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a big question mark about what, what he was hiding, why he was obstructing justice, but the fact that he did it, maybe for all of these reasons rather than for just one of them, that, that's the scandal yeah. in itself. I mean, if you had a, a mafia don standing trial and he was bribing jurors and lying to the FBI and um, using his you know, cronies to obstruct the investigation all sorts of ways. That could be the basis for a significant conviction in jail time. And the president did that. <laughs> and, you know. and has been for several of yeah, his cronies. Exactly. <laughs> so, Corey, what happens now? Will we get to see Mueller's full report? I think so. Attorney General Barr has said that there are some parts that have to be redacted because there is a grand jury secrecy that has to be Respected. I'm not so sure about that. If you get permission, um, uh, some people say, from the grand jury to uh, just release this information. But certainly he can redact it. And at minimum, I think the Congress is going to demand that. If he, re if he, for some reason, that's what he's saying he'll do. If he doesn't turn it over, he redacts so much and blacks out so much of this 300-page report that they can't really read it, then you know, Congress still does have formal powers of oversight. And so they can subpoena the, and will subpoena the report, the House Judiciary Committee. Now, the president and Barr will fight back saying, well, we've shown you what we can, and we have executive privilege under our system, co-equal branch to resist it. That's the Nixon story. Uh, it's different because it's Congress versus the president as opposed to um, a, um, a judicial subpoena in a criminal case that was the case in the Nixon case involving the tapes. Uh, but I think that same precedent would hold. And 
Um, you know, the truth is it goes to a Supreme Court, including Justice Kavanaugh, who basically campaigned for his job by trying to narrow the Nixon case and suggest it would never apply again. So I don't think we've got Kavanaugh's vote there, but I think there are five votes to ensure that the president is not above the law and, and that the attorney general has to turn over this report. So yes, the long way of saying, I think we'll see it. Brilliant. And on that point, let's go to our takeaways of the week. So it's that time where we put politics to one side and we try and lift up the human spirit, or at least um, we inquire and investigate of it. So first, I'm going to come to you over in Rhode Island, Corey Brett Schneider. What's been your takeaway the last seven days? Uh, we're both in a constitutional crisis, the UK and the United States. Um, in terms of what's worse, you know, it's comparing two very dark moments <laughs> in our histories. Uh, but I have to say, I think that after our discussion, I think that we're in the worst moment because our system has really Corey, from lift our spirits, <laughs> not politics. Oh, it's going to be Come on, sir. Is that culture. Yeah, something yeah, nice to I watch or read. Game and they almost won, and actually they've been playing so badly that was encouraging. <laughs> <laughs> the Knicks are base basketball. They baseball? are, yeah, the New York basketball team. Okay, I know nothing of these things. <laughs> I, I, I must. One of the, I don't really understand basketball. I, I can watch it. And it just seems to me people going up one end of the court shooting, scoring, going to the other end of the court shooting, scoring, the other end of the shooting, scoring, the other end of the court, miss, the other end of shooting, scoring. And, but I basketball have become... is less skilled netball. Let's be honest. Oh, have you watched? Oh wow! This? No, this is oh wow! The most yeah, that, that's not true. That's not true, no, Emma. Maybe in basketball. Netball, you have to be a lot more accurate. No, that is true. That is true because you don't have the backboard for the ball to bounce. Yeah, but the athleticism yeah, yeah. of like slamming, you know, the ball into the net from the foul line—that that's hard to do. There's only been a few people in the world that could do that. <laughs> I have become a fan of the Golden State Warriors, being a Bay Area um, you know, resident now. So. I still have real reservations about basketball. And I'll say this to you, uh, Corey, before we move on to um, Emma's uh, takeaway of the week. I, I, admi I admire the, the athleticism and the beauty that you can see with that some of those baskets uh, are scored by, by the, the, the great interplay, right? But I like real football. Okay, that's a real sport. Proper football. Okay, it's proper, right? <laughs> I understand rugby. I used to play it at school. And I actually like American football. Let's take the head concussion stuff out of it, right? <laughs> Put that to one side. Right, and, he, and, here's my, and here is my main criticism of basketball. Now, everybody the whole world over has heard of David Beckham. And I use him as an example, right? He's retired now, but everyone's heard of him. If you have 11 David Beckhams playing football, you'll lose the match if you have 11 tom brady's playing american football you lose the game <laughs> you have 11 insert name of old rugby player no 15 will carling 15 will carling there you go thank <laughs> you 15 will carlings playing rugby you lose the game you have five lebron james's you'll win every game you have five steph curry's you'll win most games. And there isn't a different, much of a differentiation between the players and the positions. And that's one of the things which confuses me about basketball. Yes, there is a point guard and there's a this and a that. But as I said, you have 11 goalkeepers playing 
football, you lose every game. 11 strikers, you lose every game. 11 midfielders, you lose every game, but not in basketball. Okay. There you go. That's, give my, a that's my takeaway of the week. Yeah, go on. Quickly, sir. Rebut away. There was a point in which American basketball was a team sport. That's the sort of Hoosiers, Indiana, Princeton style play, lots of passing. But what you get mm -hmm. now, the benefit of, you know, the trade-off is what you said. It's less of a team sport in that way. But you get this amazing athleticism and, and seeing some of the best athletes in the world literally fly. It's hard to beat that. I will concede the point that you know, sometime you see some great baskets scored. Um, Emma, um, it's your moment to shine, so shine away. So my takeaway of the week is completely opposite. It's another podcast, but um, it's not a political one. Oh, um, you're talking about my new podcast, Matt Corner? I, I wasn't. Is that like fun with flags? Yeah, absolutely fun with flags and maps. And I tell you, I was, I've was i been so browbeaten into doing this for two years. I've been talking about maps on another podcast. And people are saying, dude, why don't you just do a podcast about maps? I'm like, because we're on a podcast and they're visual. It's crazy. I started doing it. It's some of my biggest downloads. People are like, this is what we want. Anyway, wow. sorry, Emma, I'm, I'm, hi I'm hijacking you. I'm hijacking you. You go. So my, my takeaway to lift all our spirits is mm -hmm. a podcast called Looks Unfamiliar. Mm -hmm. um, it's presented by Tim Worthington, who, um, complete disclosure, is my ex-boyfriend. Um, but it's a lovely podcast. So what he does, Nepotism. he gets people on Nepotism. and they talk about things that only they seem to remember from their childhoods so that could be a toy or a book or a tv mm -hmm. show or a film but something where you know it's been lost into the google hole and it's not there when uh. you when you think when you try to look at up look it up and some of them are there let's be honest but some of them just aren't kind of the really big things that everyone goes oh do you remember from the 80s there was dynasty and it's like well actually i remember from the 80s ski boy <laughs> And it's a really nice format and he does it really well. Um, and yeah, I strongly recommend if you want a nice 40 minute break from talking about politics, yeah. you won't find any politics in Looks Unfamiliar. <laughs> and what, what's the name of the podcast again? Looks Unfamiliar. Looks Unfamiliar. I'm going to give that a listen. Um, my takeaway is that we need to remember the positive and, and not always the negative. And, and it, here's, here's my case in point. So... I drive around a bright red Golf GTI and I like it, it's a 20 year old car, it's in great condition, it's a manual shift, so it's a real car. And if you'd have said to proper me, car. what was that? Proper car. I, could, I can't proper be doing with your, with your uh, automatics. It's exactly, automatics, exactly. <laughs> and if you'd have said to me, age 15, that one day I'll be living in California, mm. driving a Golf GTI. I'd have said I'd have made it in life. That would have been <laughs> utterly perfect. And that when was I actually my dream, because I wanted to, be, I was convinced that I was going to grow up to be Jessica or Elizabeth Wakefield driving a red car around California. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am your dream, kind of. Sorta. You are my dream. <laughs> um, so. And, and here and here we kind of get to the point. So I like and when I'm driving over the Bay Bridge from Oakland into San Francisco, there's a real majesty to it. And you and I see all of my new home in its glory. So I parked in the Tenderloin, which is by far the most dystopian, scary, down at heel, troubling bit of San Francisco last week as I pulled up to park. 
um, to see to see Hamilton. Actually, there was oh, a guy fabulous. shooting up to my right, and 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 people talk about the the homelessness problem and you are walking oh you have to step over people it's terrible mm. but i've never actually seen somebody with a syringe and he tapped his arm and, he, and i saw him shoot up and i went i'm gonna move my car 100 yards and 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 that gave me a whole load of kind of liberal angst if i'm being honest with you <laughs> right a whole load but i came back after watching hamilton and, and it was great and my car had been egged somebody had thrown three eggs at it tried to pull off one of the windscreen wipers Two days uh, post that, parking outside of a, a friend's place, uh, someone smashed my driver's side window. Now, here's the thing, I need to get things in balance. So I was incredibly angry, bemoaning my lot. I'd completely forgotten the two times when going over the Bay Bridge, there's a big toll, and I've gone to pay the toll, and uh, the toll person says, the person in front has paid for you. I've oh. completely forgotten oh. the time. How adorable. Exactly. So when I was angry uh, that someone had smashed my, my, my uh, driver's side car window, I had to remember that twice a neighbour has unsolicited washed my mm. car. So oh, the wow. greater lesson for me in all of this is, as Buddhists would say, shit happens, <laughs> right? <laughs> but also remember the blessings too. Very nice. That's All my right. Absolutely. This is. Yeah. I, I think you win. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, so let's quickly, Corey. Um, how can people find you on social media, sir? Uh, on Twitter uh, at Brett Schneider C, and of course, of course, uh, you can look on Amazon uh, UK or Amazon.com for the Oath in the Office: A Guide to the Constitution for a Future President. Fantastic. And how about you, Emma? You can follow me on Twitter. I'm Emma Burnell underscore. Or if you want to visit my professional website where I put all of my written journalism, uh, that is politicalhuman.com. Brilliant. And of course, you can follow me on Twitter, though there, there's there's a little point because it's like tumbleweed up there. Uh, but it's quite simply just at Royfield. And this is a plug for me to say Matt Corner is a total joy. Um, listen to my latest episode where I interview Patrick McGranahan from uh, the subreddit Map porn and he talks about um, all the wonderful things that you can just dip your head into on that reddit and and also there's a wonderful audio postcard from one of our listeners who talks about durham the town where he lives in north carolina so map corner go there um it's a real joy and and we talk about maps because they're awesome and of course this has been mid-atlantic uh we thank you for for listening but we ask you to one thing one thing uh, only um, if you haven't done so already please go on to apple itunes write us a positive review uh because you know what um what we are is always positive about the future left of and politics is the way to go go and tell a friend also to listen to the show we'll see you all again soon bye-bye thank you that Have was fun. awesome. Cheers. Really enjoyed that. Uh, you Thank too. You so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Brilliant. You, Thanks, you, guys. You were so much better than last time, yeah. Corey. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you came prepared this time. <laughs> <laughs> That's all that I won. I won that in swimming in like seventh grade. I, I was like my greatest achievement, most improved. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we'll see you all. I'll see you both again in two weeks. All right. Time. See you yep. then. Great.
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.